Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done over 500 of them now, and if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to the past interviews menu on batgap.com, where you'll see them all archived in various ways. This program is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers, so if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there's a donate button on every page of the site, a PayPal button. I have a slight cold, as regular listeners will notice, so I sound more like an FM radio announcer than usual, or maybe more sexy. I don't know. Someone once said that last time I had a cold. <laughs> you just sound sick. I just sound sick, I would say. Yeah. Why, why try to put a positive spin on it? <laughs> anyway, not to trivialize this, my guest today is Beth Miller. Hi, Beth. Hi, Rick. Beth is a longtime Bat Gap watcher and very much a qualified guest to be on the show, as you'll soon see. She was born in Brooklyn, New York, not far from where I was born, Norwalk, Connecticut. Went back to graduate school after raising two sons outside of San Francisco. She had a satisfying, rich career as a psychologist, working in private practice and teaching at the California Institute of Integral Studies, University of California at San Francisco, and leading national workshops on resiliency. She had been convinced throughout her lifetime that there was more to us than meets the eye, and after decades of devoted searching, guided by spiritual teacher Jan Fraser, who was on Bat Gap in 2013, she experienced a profound shift in consciousness at the age of 70. Beth calls herself a poster child for it never being too late. This shift set her course in a humbling and number, wondrous way to deeper and further understanding, to embodying, and most importantly, living what had been revealed. In the sweet presence of now, she is along for the ride of in, in, intimate contact with whatever life has in store from moment to moment and day to day. So that's nicely written. Thank you, Beth. Thank you. So I read a good part of your book, Waking Up on the Couch. And when I first read it, I thought that was a reference to waking up on a psychiatrist's couch, but you actually literally woke up on a couch, <laughs> and not, not with a psychiatrist. <laughs> uh-huh. But I did use that title for the pun as well. Okay, so double entendre or whatever. A double entendre, yeah. I yeah. mean, being a, being a psychotherapist. You know, and having having spent a lot of my years on a couch, yeah. But I did also wake up on a couch. True. You just have a thing for couches. I have a thing, yeah. (laughs) So your childhood started out a little rough. Your parents were, you know, your father was a World War II veteran, as was mine, and probably had a fair amount of PTSD, as did mine. And uh, you mentioned that you you suffered from intergenerational trauma, abuse, and oppression. And uh, I guess you say it in your book, so we can say it here, but you were, you were actually raped by your father and uh, mm-hmm. impregnated mm-hmm. by him at the age of 12. So yeah. that's pretty bad on the scale of good to bad. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, not to minimize that in any way, shape, or form, which I do not, but I'd have to say one of the more long-lasting wounds that I experienced was one of being disconnected. I think it actually is harder to be disconnected than to even, sounds so crazy. I know it sounds so crazy, but there's something 
more profoundly disturbing, distressing, and wretching to not feel connected. Would you say that your disconnection was a result of that trauma? Well, you know, I don't think you can have that kind of trauma without a disconnect. There has to be some kind of disconnect for for us to act out like that. But I'd say that, I don't know, it was 1942, it was the Second World War. My grandparents were immigrants. You you Um, couldn't have been 12 in 1942. No, I was born in 1942. Oh, you were born in 42. Okay. <laughs> I'm taking you back. I'm taking you back before taking, me I'm taking way you back, back to, the yeah. be- to, to the beginning. Yeah. yeah. So, my early childhood living in that kind of oppressive atmosphere of the Second World War, we were Jewish, the Holocaust, immigrants. There was a sense of such powerlessness. I'd say that was probably the strongest feeling that I felt in the atmosphere of my home. You know, it's like, what do you do with powerless? What do you do with a whole collective of people that are powerless? It's not uncommon that you turned it on each other. And so there was just a lot of tempers and outbursts and unhappiness and bitterness. So that's the environment. In that kind of environment, I did not feel connected to my parents for very many reasons, but I did not feel connected to my parents. And I think that was more shattering than even the fact that I was so violated. Yeah, well, I've heard that people who suffer extreme trauma often, well, the people who have multiple personality disorder often Uh have suffered extreme trauma. And it's almost like they've disassociated and taken refuge in these other personalities in order to sort of get out of the personality that is experiencing the trauma directly. So do you think, although you don't have... MPD, do you think that right. you had somewhat of the same influence? Or oh, I was, without, I was without, a, without a doubt. I was dissociated without a doubt. In fact, for me, the telltale sign that actually was agonizing, and I knew this as an adult, is that my heart was completely closed. I was so removed from myself that it was painful, really painful, because I didn't feel alive. I appeared alive. I appear to have a personality. I appear to be able to be functioning somewhat, but I felt I felt profoundly removed. And I'd have to say, this is in retrospect, when I look I look at my own life and I look at our human condition, I'd have to say that every single human being feels the trauma of separation. It's a given. It's an absolute given. And so I experienced it like this was my own personal experience of it. And it was also a portal. It was an absolute portal. Like there's got to be more than this. There's got to be. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, there's that line in the Upanishads, which you probably heard me quote, which is that certainly all fear is born of duality. And anybody who's not in unity consciousness or better is in duality and therefore has this sort of root fear at a deep level in in their life. And the whole world is basically functioning that way. Exactly. And I'd have to say, I'd have to say, looking back, one of the greatest advantages is that that was very obvious to me. It was very obvious that I was unhappy, uncomfortable, and out of sync. I also should say something else because the other As much as that stream was profound, and it was a profound stream of like, this is what my life was like. I always, from the very, from early, early childhood, 
I had a sense of there being something greater than ourselves. I never questioned it. I never wondered what to make of it. It just seemed like it was just a given. It was an absolute given. Well, I, yeah, I think it's uh, to your credit, it's a blessing that you had those awarenesses because I don't think I did and I, I don't think most people do. Sure, people want more and you're frustrated and you're, you're not cool enough in high school or whatever. But to have a sort of a conscious recognition that there's something deeper to life than, than what you're yeah. experiencing. Because usually when people feel lacking in some way, they're, they're kind of externalizing it and thinking, if, I, if only I could have this car or uh, this girlfriend. Or, and you seem to have internalized it and realized there's something within. I'd say both is true. I, without a doubt, externalized. But my dream life kept me this side of sanity. You know, um, when I was an adult, I... I um, read this somewhere, Elie Wiesel, when he was in the concentration camps, he speaks of his dreams and he speaks of the joy and the well-being that showed up every single night in his dreams that kept him this side of sanity through the camps. That was my experience. That was actually my experience through childhood. Do you think that like him, you had an active dream life because your outer life was somewhat horrific and that that, that kind of force you into a, a more internalized state and therefore a more vivid dream life? I suspect that's very possible. Very possible. You're talking about a lonely child who had nowhere to go. So where do you, where do you go? And I will tell you, you know, I think it's probably worth saying, giving details to one repeated dream. I was raised in a one-bedroom apartment, and my bed was in the living room. My parents did actually both work, and so I did spend a lot of my time by myself, and I did come home from school, and I did have to do light housework. All that actually happened. But in the dream, I'm doing light housework, and I'm doing some carpet sweepers. <laughs> you remember carpet sweepers? Yeah, we used to have one of those. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay, so a carpet sweeping underneath, what do you call it, of the bed. Now, the, 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 ruffle, oh, the, the, the That ruffly thing that hangs down. Right. Yeah, the right. curtain or the apron or something like that. Something a- like that. Anyway, whatever those things are. Anyway, so I'd pick it up and I'd be putting the carpet sweeper underneath it, okay? And I'd look under and there'd be a mound of coins. And no matter how many coins I would take out and put in my pockets, the mound would replenish. It brought me, oh my God, I cannot tell you the, I cannot tell you the feeling of that dream. And I will tell you now, retrospect, this, the experience of unbounded presence, unconditional love, the gold of that. It's like, well, here's the dream that said, look, this is the truth of the matter. Now, I had no idea as a child. I had no, I, I'm telling you what I'm putting on it way later. All I can tell you as a child, I felt held. I felt cradled. I felt Something, I felt companioned. I felt absolutely companioned. And that dream kind of symbolized it for you. I think so. Yeah. It's it's not like you felt unbounded presence or being held in the dream, but somehow the the gold coins symbolized the promise of that. Is that what you're saying? That, but I also actually physically experienced the joy. You had a taste of it. I did. I did. Hmm. I did. 
And that was a recurring dream, right? You had it over a and over. Re- a recurring dream. Interesting. Yeah. And you know, the other thing too, I mean, I've thought about this a lot because I think children do get glimpses and, and just sort of like a bit of like, huh, huh. But it sort of like amazes me that I never mentioned anything to anybody. Somehow, I don't know, I don't want to put too much on it, but had a, had a good, strong enough feeling like this matters. This really matters. That's interesting. Yeah, I wonder if people listening would like to ponder whether they've had a recurring dream throughout their life. I've always had one that had to do with a mountain. And sometimes I'm hiking up it. Sometimes I'm just looking up at it. Sometimes I'm skiing on it. But there's always this mountain. (laughs) I've had it for decades. I don't know what it signifies or symbolizes, but it's always beautiful and profound and meaningful in some way I can't articulate. But and isn't that the point? Yeah, yeah. Isn't that the point? And the fact that it would be unique to our own preferences or, you know, experiences, but the same thing's being said. Like, look, wow, there's a whole lot more than meets the eye here. Yeah. Getting esoteric for a minute. Yeah. What, what do you think uh, causes dreams like that? Is it some just something all within our own neural network or something being conveyed to us by some higher intelligence or what? I have always felt it was a message from God. From God, yeah. And I will tell you that there there was not much mention, if any mention at all, in my household of God. So I I didn't come to this with any kind of schooling or conditioning or being taught anything. But I always felt like I was being... I felt it was a message from God. Yeah, that's nice. And to the and to this day, and the other thing that was also that also means a lot to me about dreams is the issue of our ego wanting to be in control. What I've always loved about dreams is that I had no say in the matter. This 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 ego, I had no say in the matter. I think that's partially why I, what I mean by it comes from God. It's like it comes from some place that I'm not having a say in the matter. I'm not controlling, and there's something, if I pay close enough attention, if I listen, if I'm open and receptive, there's something being said here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's why dreams can sometimes be so profound, because we've released the grip, you know. Um, we're kind yes. of innocent and open in a way, and um, able to be receptive to deeper levels that we might be otherwise closed to. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I've had the most profound experiences in my life during dreams, or maybe they weren't even... They, really? I don't, I don't even think they were dreams. They were somehow these sort of uh, things that happened, but the body was asleep. <laughs> uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, some of them would sometimes involve higher beings, and other times uh-huh. I'd find myself sitting in lotus in samadhi and then discover that my body was lying on the bed and things like that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. don't want to talk about me. Well, the other thing, too, about dreams, maybe you've had this experience, too. I can actually differentiate when it's more like a visitation. And there, I think partially what you're talking about is there's some way that we are being visited. And... I don't make a whole lot of it, meaning I don't, I don't try to interpret it, but everything in me sits up and takes notice. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm listening. I'm really listening. When you were a psychotherapist, were you doing dream analysis or anything like that? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Most of my work as a, as a therapist was any which way to give room and safety for the unconscious to speak. Any which way for our natural inclination to integration for it to happen. So be it. During most of your therapist years, did you already have a spiritual orientation and that was kind of the emphasis of your therapy or did that dawn later on? Both. A little bit of both, some of each. Both. Yeah. Some of each. Some of each, depending on how conscious the whole thing was. Going back to, I'll go back to what you said about the externalization of what's out there that will make me feel better when you come, come out of a childhood, a rough childhood. I want to say two things about that. One, I'd say that that set me up for, if if you can believe it or not, a fondness for disillusionment. Really, because it was actually, so I left my childhood and it's like, oh my God, finally, I don't have to be there anymore. Got married, got married early. Had actually a very lovely, lovely life, really lovely life. Got a home, two lovely children. We had resources. I wasn't abused. I wasn't mistreated. Everybody was kind. My husband was gentle. He is a gentle man. And I wasn't happy. (laughs) It's like, oh my God. Okay. So I have that in the back of my mind is one of the first and biggest disillusionments, which at the time felt awful, felt absolutely devastating. But it hit me over the head, I can tell you in retrospect, like, oh, it's not out there. It's, it's not out there. So the next thing we did, what made me think about it when you just asked me this earlier question is that I got, um, my whole family got involved in a organization community of people that were looking for higher consciousness. Let me just comment on that before you get into that story, because yes. I read about yes. that in your book. But when you think about it, the word disillusionment can have a positive connotation. Because if we want to come out of illusion, which is one of the things that right. enlightenment is supposed to be, then we should, in a way, welcome disillusionment. <laughs> and that is not to say that one has to leave a happy family life or anything in order to wake up or attain enlightenment. Um, one can do that within the context of such a life, and maybe it's even more conducive to it than a troubled one. But nonetheless, you know, I've gone through some disillusionments in my life, and you know, I'm happy for them in retrospect because even though they might have been a little uncomfortable at the time, they enabled me to step back, reassess all my yeah. assumptions, and rethink things and um, move on. That's why I say I have a fondness for it. Yeah, it's, exact, yeah. it's exactly what. And I will tell you, it's carried through my life. And even at the moment of awakening, this feeling of like, ah, that's it. That's it. And it's like this memory of like, it's all right to be disillusioned. It's really all right. Is this, remember that song, is this all there is to the circus? This, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you bring it up because that was, that was my experience, even though the actual disillusionment feels terrible because there's so much banking on, ah, I'm okay now. Well, when you think about it though, there's a, there's an evolutionary momentum to life an evolutionary trajectory. And if that were not so, then perhaps we would end up being content 
with the same old, same old for decades on end. But there's a reason why you you get the new car or whatever, and after a while, you feel like, hmm, this isn't really going to fulfill me. Because, you know, God or nature or whatever is telling us that there is a deeper fulfillment and don't don't satisfy, don't be satisfied with trifles. Exactly. Exactly. And may we be listening. Yeah. May and we, if, may if we, we're may not, we then listen. the message will come louder and clearer. <laughs> louder. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you're about to get into the story about the spiritual group. So it was another profound disillusionment because, again, I thought, I thought it was out there. And it was this ongoing, like, something out there is going to make me feel all right. It's going to make me feel Okay. And not surprising, given the rough background I had, there was this ongoing stream of wanting to belong in this dimension and a chronic, not even chronic, like an ongoing question of what else is there? I know there's more. I know there's more. I don't know how to touch it any deeper. I don't know how to make it more alive in me. I don't even know what exactly it is. So there was this like meandering through. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I'm just laughing because <laughs> I, when I hear you talk, I'm reminded of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, you know, with Richard Dreyfus, And he knew there was more. And he, he just, I just saw it was on TV recently. I, of course, I saw it years ago. But that, that movie is such a perfect metaphor for the spiritual path. You've seen the movie, right? You remember it? Yeah. And it's like he just couldn't rest. And, you know, he's trying to eat dinner and, and he, he starts mounding up his mashed potatoes. He said, this means something. <laughs> anyway, he just couldn't rest. And all these people were weeded out who didn't make it uh-huh. to Devil's Tower, you know, because they, uh-huh. they doubted or they got discouraged or they believed the people that said it was just a gas leak or something uh-huh. and they, they shouldn't go there. But he just didn't believe it. He kept piercing through the illusions and the deceptions and the, uh-huh. the smoke screens. And eventually he was the one that got to go up on the ship with the aliens. Amen. Right? Yeah. It was such exactly. a cool. Exactly. The whole movie was a metaphor. I have to go watch it again. It's been years since I've seen it. It'd be worth checking it out again. <laughs> Great yeah. movie. Anyway, I'm have sorry fun. I interrupted have your train fun. of thought, have but fun. I, just, have fun. <laughs> I just kept chuckling as you were talking. Yeah. The two trains, the two like streams here. So here I am in this community, confused because part of me wants to belong. That's all. And part of me is very interested in what are we really searching for? And maybe there's some kind of clue here. So again, it was a it was a big disillusionment because it was not where I was going to rest my head. It was not home for me. But I will say that um, I discovered and I discovered Jesus there. Now, being raised Jewish, I couldn't have told you. And I remember even during this time of studying the teachings of Jesus, I remember thinking, I don't know why it was so not kosher. I don't know why I wasn't supposed to be studying this this man, but I knew I wasn't supposed to. And I'd have to say, in retrospect, he was my very first teacher. Because the community and the folks that were running it had the presence of mind to separate out his profound being and teachings from interpretations of what he has said. And so again, being Jewish, I came to him fresh. 
And something very big communicated to me. Something very big registered. Still couldn't do anything with it. But it's like, ah, I can tell you now, this is what I could have thought is that this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. But the community itself was not where I was going to stay. And so, yeah, yeah. It's funny how just about all spiritual groups are quirky. Some of them really are um, careful to keep constructive criticism lively and to keep sort of introspecting and fine-tuning and tweaking their direction. And they manage to remain pretty healthy. But it's funny how things can go off the rails with, with many different groups. Somehow it's, there's this right. my, myopia sort of closes in when you're in your own little thought bubble with like-minded right. people <laughs> and egos right. come into play and whatnot. But right. anyway, with Absolutely. anything like that, you know, you, you take what you need and you leave the rest. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I don't know if this is where a good point for us to get into it, but it brings to my mind, you and I had a very brief conversation before we got started here about shadow, the shadow material. And I think that's partially what you're referring to. Yeah, we can get into it. We can always meander around. Okay. Because I'd say that for many reasons, turning to psychology made such a vast difference for me. And one of them is because it was a safe enough place to become absolutely radically honest with myself, radically honest with myself. And I don't know how you can be radically honest with yourself without looking at places you don't want to look. And so I don't care whether it's the individual, a religious organization, the collective at large, our political system, our globe. There's something singularly about, what about what we don't want to see? What about what we don't want to feel? Because if you don't look and if you don't feel it, we all know it gets projected out. It gets played out. We know what that looks like all too well, all too well. Yeah, I've been involved with uh, this Association for Spiritual Integrity, which you may be aware of, along with Jack O'Keefe and Craig Holiday and Mariana Kaplan. Craig and Mariana are both... uh, therapists of some sort and they're convinced just upon their their experience that and i've heard others say this too but that some sort of therapy is almost a requirement for spiritual seekers at least at certain phases of of their their lives it could be an expedient or a, a catalyst for their growth if they could work through this stuff more directly rather than let it simmer on some exactly semi-conscious level and trip them up from time to time exactly Exactly. You know, it makes me want to fast forward for just a minute and then come back to this. How to say this clearly and and in a grounded way. I want to talk about integration. That's where I got from what you just said. This, This business of integrating this profound, unbounded presence and our very humanity. So I think I want to start with how I experience that right now. This intersection of being human and being pure presence, you know what? Still to this day, it makes me weep 
it's so gorgeous. It's so gorgeous. God, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And the place of like getting to be human, getting to have the experience of like sitting here, speaking with you, getting intimate with life in a human dimension. Oh my God. I mean, my God. Okay. And to have it all permeated and animated, completely permeating, completely animated by pure presence. I mean, consciousness, awareness, God consciousness, whatever we want to call it, intelligence, whatever we want to call it. Oh, my God. It's such a hard thing to talk about. <laughs> you want me to chime in for a second and give you a break? <laughs> yeah, well, maybe even maybe even spur something on. Yes, sure. Please. Well, as you said that, I, I just I, I thought you know the divine went to a lot of trouble to get to this point. Uh, first, there was the big bang, and then there were you know, there was a lot of hydrogen and helium, and then at, at a certain point, it started to congeal into clouds, and those cl- some of those clouds became mm-hmm. stars, and the stars mm-hmm. lived out a multi-billion-year lifespan and exploded, and that gave us some heavy elements, and then that formed a second generation of stars, and eventually, you know, we ended up with rocky planets, and then biological life, and, and then eventually, you know, as Brian Swim says, um, you know, leave hydrogen alone for 13.7 years, and th- 7 billion years, and you end up with giraffes and rose bushes uh, and opera. Wow. And so there's been this evolutionary project going on for yeah. billions of years into greater and greater complexity and vehicles capable of fuller and fuller expression of the divine as a living reality or embodiment of the divine is a better word, as a living reality. And here you and I are a couple of them talking about it. And there is something extremely profound and beautiful about that. It's not just some meaningless, random, accidental thing, as some so-called scientists would suggest. It's the play of God, of, of omnipresent intelligence, doing something remarkably mysterious and profound in order for that deep intelligence to enjoy as a living embodiment, as a living reality, rather than just flat on manifest being. Exactly. So that's one way of putting it. And to know that, to know that viscerally, to live that. Yeah, to know you are that living as a human being. To know that I am that and me are not separate. To know that viscerally. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And to have this experience of... Like, this is the instrument. The music is not mine. There is a particular song to this personality. And to be able to completely enjoy that. Completely enjoy that. And I think not only because it's beyond, beyond anything you or I could possibly understand. So that brings me to my knees. But also to remember, for me to remember where I came from, what my life was like when it was so constricted, when I was so locked or locked into and dissociated from to be in this experience. It's like, are you kidding me? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Really? Really? 
why did I write the book just for that? To say, look, there is a lot going on here, folks. There's a lot going on here, you know? Yeah, can you remember back to when you were a lot younger and you said, you know, you realized there was something more, which is great because not, I don't know how, how clear that is with a lot of people, but can you remember a time when life looked sort of dead, the, the world looked sort of dead and flat and meaningless and devoid of sentience of any kind and contrast that with the way the world looks to you now? Do I know the former experience you're talking about? All too well. All too well. I will tell you, I can remember even having the conscious awareness of like, I do not know how to live, uh, how to love. I feel dead. I feel dead. I am going through motions here. Just going through motions. Like, so am I, do, do I know that experience? Oh my God. All too well. All too well. And You know, I mean, people say this all the time, and it's hard to make enough of this, of we see the world through our filters. So to see the world now through awareness, and because I am a human being and my mind will get active and I will have backlashes, I even in that moment have that exact experience right there. This is what it feels like when I'm constricted. This is what it feels like. And all the time, it doesn't have the same charge to it because everything in me knows that it's a momentary constriction. But I don't forget that there were most, it was most of my life where it was not seen as a momentary constriction. It was seen as this is the way it is. This is true. Well, you have a foundation now. If someone has, let's say, $20 to their name, then gaining or losing $10 is a big deal. If someone is a multimillionaire, then gaining or losing $10 is you're still gaining or losing the same amount of money, but mm-hmm. it's really not a big deal, you know, because you have this ocean of of wealth, speaking metaphorically. And so that's just a little ripple on it rather than a huge crashing event. Exactly. I mean, you bring me back to my dream. I think that's exactly what the dream was saying. The coins, they'll be replenished. One coin is not going to make or break you. Yeah. And I think the things that buffet us in life do so to make us stronger. Wasn't that Nietzsche who said, whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh, it's uh-huh. like the blacksmith pounding the horseshoe or something. He seems to be hurt, hurting the horseshoe, uh-huh. but he's actually pounding it into the right shape or the metal worker or whatever, the uh-huh. molding something. It might seem cruel to say that in some cases because people experience such catastrophic events. But I don't know, if we zoom out to a big enough picture, mm-hmm. you know, maybe we can see the wisdom in it. Mm-hmm. My experience is that both are true. If you zoom in, it's like it's agonizing, absolutely agonizing. And I think the pain is like the sorrow or the grief. Like, yeah, you zoom out. It's like, wow. I mean, look at the childhood I came through and it's like your horseshoe. (laughs) It's like your horseshoe. I cannot make a cause and effect here. 
But I have to tell you, it feels to me like mo- a lot of my compassion comes from having felt so awful. You know, it was pretty bad. And my heart goes out. My heart goes out to the experience I had. My heart goes out to anybody hurting. There are a lot of stories like that in literature, like The Prince and the Pauper, you know, where you can't really appreciate yeah. what it's like to be a pauper until you've gone through it yourself. And so, yeah. in a way, having gone through rough times in our lives makes us a better helper for mm-hmm. other people. And it's, it's rather unfortunate sometimes that some spiritual teachers are so glib about people's suffering. You're like, oh, it's just an illusion. Oh, you know, mm. it's not the real you. It's very real to them. And while you don't want to give them the sense that that is the reality, you do want mm-hmm. to convey that there's something more. To just brush it mm-hmm. off, I think, is unkind. And it could also yeah. encourage disassociation or spiritual bypassing. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You say, unlike many who sought and found an ultimate truth through meditation and or spiritual inquiry, I fell into my true nature by shedding defenses, mostly in psychotherapy. Being in the room with a loving presence allowed the deep surrender that is common to every spiritual communication or practice. So, like, you know, how many years of psychotherapy did you do? (laughs) (laughs) 250. Yeah, right. No, no, no. The first time around was eight years, and the second time around was three and a half. But the second time around was three times a week. Wow. I know. And you really found it transformative, obviously. I did. I did. I want to say two things about that. Let's start with how transformative it is. It was. The case I make for things for me in psychotherapy is that there was something about sitting with another person and a person that was not judgmental, a person that had enough skills, that was kind, and could look me in the eye and hold me in a way that I could start to understand what I felt, understood what I was thinking. I didn't know these things. Understood my own opinions, got into the history of my background, I think, too, we often say the problem is our belief system, the problem is our history, the problem is our identification. It's all true. But it can be, it can be dealt with on a superficial level, and it can actually enhance spiritual bypassing. Because like we said earlier, it's like, well, that's not me, so I can go do whatever. Being in an ongoing presence of it's safe to keep looking gave dimension to beliefs, gave dimension to history, gave dimension to my motivations, gave dimension to the very fact like, wow, there's nothing else here but self-centeredness. Wow. Okay. I needed that safe environment. I needed that kind of contact connection in order to be that um, transparent with myself, without a doubt. And I think that that's one of the reasons, whether it's before, during, or after awakening, without that kind of work, 
you never know when and how it will come up and bite you in the butt or bite somebody else in the butt. There's a lot of butt biting going on. There's a lot of spiritual community. Right, exactly, exactly. Now that being said, I will tell you that it's no surprise to you at all that there's a major limit to psychotherapy, a major limit, not the least of which it's based on a belief that something is broken, something needs to be fixed. Something needs to be made whole. Something needs to be transformed. So to begin with, that perpetuates itself. And it perpetuates in the person sitting there in the office, something's wrong with me. Perpetuates Do you think it can not only perpetuate it, but reinforce it? And that's the other thing. the The second point is that it's pretty much around the ego. So it's to make the ego stronger, to make the ego more functional, which please do not get me wrong. Thank you, thank you, thank you for this service, for what I received and what I give. Thank you. Well, you know, as many have said, you have to develop a strong ego before you can relinquish the ego, transcend the ego. You know, if the ego is damaged and broken and dysfunctional, then, you know, you can't really... Just transcending a dysfunctional ego may be difficult, and it also may not fix the ego. Exactly. You know, and I used to not think that because my teacher, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, always used to say, well, just don't water the leaves of the tree, water the root. And if you water the root, the whole tree will flourish. But then there have just been so many examples of, I won't name names, but people who appear to be highly enlightened and who genuinely did have an obvious profound degree of conscious mm-hmm. realization of realization really screwed up in certain relative behavioral right. ways which they never had the proper opportunity or feedback or circumstances to look at and mm-hmm. to correct some would say if you know you're an asshole and you get enlightened you're going to be an enlightened asshole so try to fix <laughs> it you know before before then <laughs> it's one of my appreciations of ken wilber's work yeah grow up Right. Wake grow, up, grow, grow up, grow, clean grow. up, wake up. Yeah. yeah. And the I whole really thing of lines that. and development, lines of development and how tightly correlated these various lines are. And mm-hmm. they like a big stretchy rubber band. They're just not that tight. And so you have to kind of attend to all these things. Yes. For your own benefit, yeah. not just for others, especially if you're going to be take on the role of a spiritual teacher. Yeah. But mm-hmm. even and if we're really concerned about our own enlightenment and development to have it be as profound as possible, then becoming a better human being in every sense of that phrase is part of the package. And and it's not enough to say you're not a human being, you're just pure consciousness and forget about being a human being, because like it or not, you're going to continue to be a human being (laughs) on some level. And it's going to cause you trouble, as we've seen so many times, if you don't address that stuff. Absolutely. And conversely, What a marvel to be a human being and to to be able to keep cleaning up and enjoying that humanity. Why miss that? Why miss that? Also, if we like to think of ourselves as instruments of the divine, if we have a sense of sort of Uh wanting wanting to serve the divine, then we want to be nice, effective Mm -hmm. instruments. You know, we don't want to be sort of like dirty glasses or broken hedge clippers or whatever kind of tool metaphor we want to use. We want to be in good working order so as to actually really be of service. That's lovely. That's really, really lovely. Especially since the divine is so 
treats us so well. <laughs> you know, very and, lovely. You know, yeah. to to anthropomorphize it, I, I think the divine really needs effective um, instruments or servants yeah. or whatever term, yeah. especially in this day and age where there's sort of a, a dire kind of situation in the world. And the fact that there are so many people waking up oh. and teaching and so on is probably in response to the dire straits of the mm-hmm. world situation. You know, when I was on a, a, my teacher training course, become a TM teacher, Marsh, he said, um, he said, when there's a war on, there's no time to train sharpshooters. Just give them a rifle and send them out. So we were a bunch of bozos, you know, they gave us a rifle, so to speak, and sent us out. But I think now, mm. 50 years later, you know, we can train sharpshooters, pardon the military metaphor. You know, we want to be sort of effective marksmen, spiritually speaking, rather than just shooting wildly and, and having who knows what kind of mixed effect. It makes me think, too, that after the awakening, I'm so glad that some wisdom arrived in me. It's like, there's more, there's more. And this whole period of embodiment is as important, no, maybe even more important, maybe even more important, you know, cleaning up the instrument. Describe um, what led up to your awakening. So far, we've only gotten as far as psychotherapy, really, and a sort of an inkling when you were a child that there was something more. But how did it get more explicit in your life, that there was this spiritual attainment to be had? And, you know, what were the steps and practices or teachers or whatever that led you to that attainment? I'll go back again to the psychotherapy, because basically what it did over the years is it helped shed defenses. And so much of my experience seems to center around my heart closed and then just keep opening and opening and opening. By the time I'm actually a therapist myself, I'm no I'm I'm single, my kids are grown. And there's this kind of inkling. I have to tell you I'm in such better shape, such better shape, but there's this background inkling of hmm. And I don't even know what the hmm is. <laughs> but there's a hmm. And one day I'm, I have a break in my office. I have the Sun magazine on my desk and there's a picture of Ajashanti on the cover. And I read the interview and I am, I am actually through the pages, like, like, you know, sit, sit back like this, like, whoa, not only his presence, which came right through the pages, but he put words to something that had been in the background my whole life. And he put the words spiritual awakening and enlightenment. I'd never heard the words. My intuition all the way through my life is like, I would say to myself, I want a personal relationship with God. I had no idea what that meant. I had no idea where to even look for it. And then when I heard those words, it was like, ah, ding, 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 ding. Okay. So, um, and then I make a joke on myself because I didn't know that Ajashanti was well known. I just go, oh, look. <laughs> like, I feel like I just found somebody that nobody else knows about. <laughs> and he's local. I live in San Francisco, so he's local. So that was the beginning of a more concerted, oh, let's go check things out. What year was that? Just out of curiosity. I want to say, I don't know, maybe 2008. I'm making it up. I mean, I'm guessing. I don't know. 
And so my experience with him was very remarkable because um, having been physically and sexually abused, my body was tight, just tight. I'll tell a story on myself. I gave talks several times because of my first book on cultivating resilience. And three times when I was speaking, three separate times, a body worker came up to me and said, I didn't ask, I mean, this is unbidden, said, have you ever thought about doing body work? Because <laughs> you're so and tight. It, it's only in retrospect that I'm aware of what they were looking at or what they were seeing. So I'm just giving you a sense of how come it was so remarkable to me to be sitting in the audience at Ajashanti and feel everything in me, my entire body, just open wide. And I'm looking at myself going, who's this? And what's this? And recognizing, being able to recognize that I was in a presence that was familiar to me. And I didn't even know what the meant. I didn't know what it meant, but I knew it was familiar to me. So I went to his satsangs for, I'm going to guess a year. I'm going to guess a year. And a friend gave me Jan Frazier's book, When Fear Falls Away. I read her book and I had the same experience with the presence. It communicated off the page, off the page. And my body did the same thing in reading her book that I felt when I was with Aja. And Aja wasn't taking any individual people at the time. Um, He was only working in groups and satsang. And having read Jan's book, I contacted her. And then I started working with her. And that's when things started to get like, wow, quick and quick and quick. And it's a fascinating thing to me because my understanding, my experience of how transmission works, it's like being in the presence, and I mean intimate, close contact in the presence of unconditional love and complete openness. What it did is it activated something that had been known in me, but not accessed. And so the more time I spent with her and the more time I stayed quite attentive, I watched it grow. And so there was this kind of dance that went on because the more the love and the more that pure presence started to grow, the more the defenses could thin out, dissolve, and actually really actually disappear to a large degree. Then there's, there's an interesting cart and horse question here, which is, does presence grow because we're dropping defenses or do defenses drop because presence is growing? Right. Right. Or, or both, I, or, could, or both. It, could it be either or both, or a combination, right. or maybe it depends yeah. on the circumstances? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know exactly that, but I will tell you there is a relationship. There is a relationship. And I'd say that's one of the reasons I still feel that being intimate contact with people who are open, undefended, awake, alive makes a difference. Oh, yeah. It makes a difference. It's contagious. It's contagious, for (laughs) real, for real. Yeah, thank God. (laughs) 
that's why I still go to see Ama after all these years, you know, it's like, a, what yeah. is it, a 30 second hug or something. But after three, four days of getting a few of those and just being mm-hmm. in that atmosphere, you feel totally shifted. Yeah. You know, and uplifted. Yes. yes. Yes, exactly. And then speak and then going fast forward to the actual awakening. The thing that is still feeling mar- like a marvel is that that's what we are. That's what I am. That love, that like, yeah. So then it goes from, it's no longer out there only. It's fully here. Okay, wow. (laughs) That's an important shift, you know, because you can get kind of addicted to Shakti experiences, you know, and this teacher's radiating this and this teacher's radiating that. At some point, it has to shift to the point where you realize that right. that's what I am. You know, it's, it's, it's everywhere. Exactly. 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 Yeah. And that's when it becomes so real and so grounded and so like, no matter what, for real, <laughs> no matter what. Well, I'm going to use the example of if a log that's not burning is placed next to a log that's burning, then eventually the other log will be burning just as much as the first log. But there's a value to that proximity until the other log gets yes. ignited. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, so then you you were with Idea for a year, and then you met Jan, and and met Jan. Did you have to like commute to Vermont from San Francisco <laughs> or what? <laughs> um, I went. I did go once. I gave myself the gift for my seventieth birthday of going and spending a week in Vermont to sit with her for about two three hours every day for five days. And it was wonderful. God, it was wonderful. And it left me in a state of bliss. Came home and it's like, wow. That's why I, I don't know, but when I said it to you, it's like, I, can, I really can't understand the temptation to stay there. I get that. I get that. Because, wow, it's so blissful. It's so blissful. It's so easy. It's so lovely. It's so absolutely lovely. And I get the shadow side of that, too. I get the shadow side of being stuck there. And, and um, so anyway, so there was that period of time. And I spoke to her on the phone frequently, very yeah. frequently. And sent a lot of emails back and forth, which is a major part of your book. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right. Right. That was the other thing I wanted to I wanted to offer and communicate is like what that kind of being seen does for us. Yeah. It's, it's nice to be able to have a relationship with a personal teacher like that, which, which again, yes. is, I think, maybe one of the blessings of the current culture where there are all these teachers, you know, maybe none of whom are the most enlightened beings ever to walk the planet, but still have something valuable to offer. And, you know, you don't need a, a Nobel laureate in physics to have as a high school physics teacher or a college physics teacher, you know, you, you kind of move up mm-hmm. the line as, as the need develops. Yeah. Yeah. And we are fortunate that, that there are people like that. We are very fortunate. Yeah. Well then, um, Jan came out for a retreat. I don't, there were maybe, maybe about eight of us in a home for three days. Out to the West coast. Yeah. She came to, she came to California. And we were together for three days. So sweet. And on the very last day, 
the very, very last day of our three days we'd been together, several things happened. I don't think it was in this order, but I'm going to start here anyway, because it still tickles me because there was this spontaneous prayer that came up to me is like, wouldn't it be something to awaken in the midst of other people, like with folks here? And the reason I say it to you that way is because, again, given my personality and given my conditioning, being alone was falling off the Grand Canyon kind of feeling. And so the period of this thinning of defenses, I have to say there was some harrowing, harrowing experiences of my ego going, no way, no way, no way, no way, no way. Is that what you mean by the falling off the Grand Canyon thing? What was it about being alone that was like the Grand Canyon? So like three o'clock in the morning, I, I would imagine myself letting go fully. And it would feel as if I was going to fall off the edge of the Grand Canyon uh, cliff. It was like scary. Sort of like the, that's, a, the, that's an understatement. The vastness was scary. Oh, my God. The vastness was scary. The unknown was scary. And there was this part of like, and I'm all by myself. And I'm all by myself. Okay. So given that was in the background, I thought it was absolutely hysterical that that would be the prayer because I can appreciate like, oh, maybe it could be in company, this profound, ultimate letting go. Here's one last veil. May it be with other people. Okay. The actual experience of being there that day, there were several things that happened. One was... I lost all sense of boundaries, all sense. And because we were in a room and because we were all together, it showed up with each other. It's like there was no separation between you and me, none, none whatsoever. And it wasn't about being empathic for you. It was like, I am you. 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 And what got my attention about that? is that it couldn't have been more natural. There was nothing extraordinary about it. It couldn't have been more ordinary, like, right, 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 okay? So that was one of the things. The other thing is that there was something very real burning in my gut to such a degree that I would have assumed it would be visible. Like you would have seen red hot all over me because something was burning, was burning so intensely. The biggest, the most probably hardest to to put into words was the, the love that showed up from within me. It was uncontainable, inexpressible beyond immense, like to my knees and familiar, like so, so, so familiar, so familiar. It sounds like you were pretty ripe. I don't know. I don't know if everybody else in the room was having that experience, but you were ready to, ready to pop. Exactly. 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 Right. 
but there is yeah. definitely something to be said for uh, an, you know an assemblage of people on the same wavelength like that a higher higher wavelength there's a synergistic effect you know and it's, uh. it's extremely conducive to everyone's awakening and there's so many different verses from various scriptures that emphasize that yeah. and that uh, warn against the opposite of hanging around darker more incoherent crowds of people, yeah. situations if you're interested in spiritual awakening that's actually very lovely. I hadn't thought about it. I hadn't thought about that experience in that context. It's actually very lovely. Yeah. There's a whole beautiful thing from the last end of the Rig Veda. I'll send it to you later. I don't want to interrupt the interview by looking it up. It's just a beautiful thing about an assemblage is significant in unity and know your, mm. know your minds to be functioning together from a common source. It's a nice quote, but it's just a case in point because almost every yeah. every spiritual tradition emphasizes the value of being with like-minded people, spiritual mm. aspirants. It's like, you know, if you're in a perfume factory, you're going to come out smelling like perfume. You can't help it. Uh-huh. But if, if you're in a, a, let's say, a coal mine or something, uh-huh. no matter how careful you are, you're going to come out with coal soot on you. So the company one keeps is considered yeah. to be extremely important for spiritual aspirants. And don't you know that inside out? I mean, can't you just feel it? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've experienced it both ways. <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which is not to say one should be snobbish and avoid people who are suffering. I mean, some of the most wonderful people in this world, like Mother Teresa and many others, plunge right into the, to the yeah. suffering and, and give of themselves all they can to help to um, ameliorate it. But... I think people get the point of the difference between that and just hanging out in bars and and hoping to somehow get enlightened. Yeah, yeah. However, we might be staying unconscious. I think that's part of the point, too. Like, Yeah. Yeah. So you're on this retreat with Jan, and you're having Mm -hmm. this kind of unity experience, but that wasn't wasn't the, the watershed moment that you later experienced. So let's take us on to that. Uh, what are you thinking? Because it really well, there it was. was something. Where, oh, there was something on a couch where you were alone, and you're sitting on a couch, and all of a sudden, oh, quietly, okay, right, okay, it was okay, the quietest, yes. gentlest thing. Right. But that was the shift. Okay, so yes, what I just described was the last day of the retreat. We all went home. I thought it was very. I mean, I actually, I don't even know what I, if I gave any thought to it at all. Got up the next morning, lay down on the couch, and it's like. Oh my God. Oh my God. Because it was a dawning of like, the shift just happened. It happened. I think that's partially what you're talking about. Now, had it, it happened like the, the day before at the retreat and you, had, had, you hadn't recognized it, but then the next exactly. morning you thought, oh yeah, I'll be done. There it was. Exactly. And what got clear is that the shift that had gone on is what was looking through my eyes was radically different. Okay, here it is. Irene just sent me the quote I was looking for. Go together, speak together, know your minds to be functioning together from a common source in the same manner as the impulses of creative intelligence in the beginning remain together united near the source. Integrated is the expression of knowledge and assembly is significant in unity. United are their minds while full of desires. For you, I make use of the integrated expression of knowledge. By virtue of unitedness, 
and by means of that which remains to be united, I perform action to generate wholeness of life. United be your purpose, harmonious be your feelings, collected be your mind, in the same way as all the various aspects of the universe exist in togetherness, wholeness. There you go. Thank you, Irene. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of the crescendo, grand conclusion of the Rig Veda, 10th mandala of the Rig Veda. Out of many, there is one. Yeah. And there's all these, you know, you see all these sort of Vedic pictures of all the rishis sitting around together or the the master sitting Mm. there with all these disciples and all. I don't know why we're talking about this so much, but look what effect it had on you. You just, exactly. uh, you know, there you exactly. were in this assemblage, and I don't think you would have had the same shift otherwise. Who knows, but, you know, I'm sure glad it worked that way. Yeah. <laughs> so that's yeah. the value of satsang. Well, that's what I was thinking as you're reading this. I was thinking about retreats and satsang. No wonder. Yeah. No wonder. Yeah. yeah. And even what you're saying about Amma, about the, um, you, didn't say, you didn't say horse. What did you call it? What did you say? What's activating another? Oh, like logs? One log getting another one burning? Exactly. Yeah, that the kind of thing. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so that's the value of these things. And there's a downside to it. There could be in terms of groupthink and cultish ways of thinking that develop them. You know, you need to kind of get outside the box and keep your balance and keep your perspective and not let yourself get all sort of weird <laughs> mm-hmm. but you know don't, well, throw the ba- don't throw the baby out with the bath water either yeah yeah i mean you ha- we have to stay real with ourselves yeah and integrate there we stay- go with the word integration again and integration isn't right. like you know nothing is happening for 20 years then you have an awakening and then you've got to integrate it, it happens every step of the way there are incremental degrees of spiritual development or, or development of consciousness, and each increment needs to be counterbalanced or integrated as it, as it yes. happens. Yes, that's actually my experience, very much, very much. And you're going back to like, and so how does presence enhance that? And it does. The deeper and more present, the easier that kind of integration. It's like, I don't have to do anything anymore. It actually happening on its own my job is to stay honest with myself, to stay real with what's going on. Well, this line I just read, you know, by virtue of unitedness and by means of that which remains to be united, I perform action to generate wholeness of life. So the, wow. mean, the means of that which remains to be united would be, would be the whole relative world which may not yet appear united. But you interact with that, you engage in that, and continue taking resource to the unified value, the presence, and the presence gets more and more infused into that which appears or may have appeared to be disunited. It just permeates it more and more. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> saying it that way, because that's my experience. Yeah, that's why I'm saying it. Like, right. It's like, yay, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so it's interesting to note that you had this experience and then this waking experience on that weekend with Jan, and then you realize yes. it the next morning. But then in the ensuing years, you realize yes. that there was still stuff to work through. This is sort of a recurrent theme, but I don't know if everybody quite realizes that because a lot of times people think they're going to be home free once they have some sort of awakening and, you know, never have to deal with anything again or something. So, so let's talk about uh, that. that. 
That's what I thought. That's what you thought, yeah. Imagine my surprise. Yeah. It's like, oh my goodness. So I'm going to be perfect. Well, I'm going to be just, I'm going to be all right. (laughs) Especially, remember how many years of psychotherapy. It's not like I didn't understand this human condition. So imagine my shock. And in retrospect, again, looking back at the whole thing, it makes so much sense to me because there was an embodiment that wasn't going to happen conceptually. Partially what I think where my illusion was is that it would just clean. I would just be cleaned out. At the moment of awakening, you would be cleaned out. I'd be cleaned out. So it wasn't even, I can't fault myself for like missing a boat here. It's like, I just thought I'd be cleaned out. And at the risk of delineating something that is not really accurately delineated, I'd say the next five years was about the body waking up. And again, maybe because of the trauma, who knows, who knows what, but I can tell you that there was an ongoing processing of this realization through the body. And the body had a mind of its own. I often bow to and say thank you to Scott Killaby. I think you interviewed him as well. Oh, yeah, a couple because, times. Yeah, because he said um, the body did not get the good news. And I could have kissed him because that, that's right. The body did not get this good news. But the point being is like, oh, my goodness, of course, of course. Now, I have to say there's also the part that I reveled in almost like a child discovering something I had not ever known. And that is, what's it like to walk in the woods? What's it like to do yoga? What's it like to be sick and not be afraid? What's it like to move? From this state, this kind of like, oh, I'm not removed any longer. I'm not dissociated any longer. There is a congruency that's going on here that means I feel things I've never felt before. So easy? No. But something about it was like, wow. So you're experiencing everything for the first time in a way with fresh eyes. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Nice. Exactly. Really nice. Yeah. Really nice. Like, okay, very, very nice. So I went to yoga. I went to cranial sacral work. I went to Feldenkrais. I did hiking. I did full body meditation. I just like began a whole process of becoming familiar with and friendly, not to underestimate friendly with my body and deaf. Because one thing that's almost like, again, it's not a real thing to delineate, but there was a way that my psyche had died. There was a way of a profound surrendering and letting go over time of a mental construct. And now there's this kind of letting go of a body of this body. Yeah, about the body. I mean, obviously the body is the instrument through which anything is experienced including awakening and you know right, as jesus right. said the body is the temple of the soul and i think right. there's a certain degree of opening or purification that would be necessary for awakening to dawn or that would at least be 
conducive to it, make it likely. Mm. But yeah. that's not necessarily a complete transformation of the body to the extent it can right. be transformed. But having right. done that, remember, remember Peace Pilgrim? Did you ever read her book? Um, no. She was this great woman who just sort of walked around the United States with a you know, just basically a sweatshirt and sneakers and just totally mm. trust, no possessions, no money, no no nothing, and just completely threw herself on the mercy of the divine. Uh, but she was in a very high wow. state of consciousness. And I remember this chart she drew where she said about how evolution sort of goes, but then once awakening happens, it sort of takes off like the hockey, the, the, like the global warming hockey stick. And because you have that sort of foundation of pure consciousness, that's which is like a solvent for mm. cleaning up everything, much more efficiently than it can otherwise be cleaned up. And that's what you did. You know, you just sort of mm. engaged in all these things to accelerate the purification of the body. Yeah. I like that word solvent. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. it is like that. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if you think of water as being a solvent, yeah. you've heard me use this example, you dump a little mud into a glass of water and it yeah. can't really handle it. There's not enough water to dissolve the mud, but you nice. throw the same handful into an ocean or even a swimming yeah. pool and it kind of dissolves because there's enough vastness of, of the solvent of the water to dissolve exactly. the, uh, the mud. And so exactly. once pure consciousness dawns, or even if we can have momentary access to it, it's very conducive to the purification of all these samskaras they're called mm. these impressions i'll bet you anything that's why it feels so effortless because it's ha- it's happening on its own yeah, in that regard yeah. it's just it's this it's this yeah you're kind of an automatic pro- and, and you're natural, you're it's not a natural doing process. it exactly yeah. it's a natural process yeah. yeah yeah as a matter of fact how could we do it it's too complicated you know <laughs> I mean, we, we couldn't keep ourselves alive for two seconds if we had to sort of manage our heart and our breath and our exactly. blood flow and all that, our liver and all that stuff. But there's a sort of a, you know, a natural process for all this that we actually fully um, turn on once awakening yeah. takes place. Yeah. Isn't that a relief? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. A question came in from your namesake yeah. uh, in Spokane, Washington, Beth. Um, huh. She wants to know, in your experience, do you think that we uh, slash humans try to overanalyze enlightenment and try to interpret spirituality from the limited intellectual part of our mind instead of experiencing the universal loving force that manifests life all around us spontaneously and for no other reason than unbounded love? It certainly is it's certainly something we do do. Absolutely something we do do until we don't, <laughs> until we don't. And, you know, who knows that what, what force or purpose it does in the meantime to try to get some kind of grokking of what this is all about? I don't know. I mean, you know, people wake up like that. People have my experience, like plodding. It's like, I don't know. You know, I think different people have different proclivities. You know, some are gyanis, some are bhaktas, some you know, some are more intellectual, some are more de- emotional or devotional. But I think there's nothing wrong with any of those things according to your inclinations, and there's certainly nothing wrong with an intellectual understanding of all this, um, as long as it, you don't mistake it for the actual realization. Exactly, I, th- I think that's a very good point. And, and uh, let me add to that too. 
I don't know whether I'm just making this up or not, but I would say for someone like myself with the level of trauma I had, there's a way that I had to trust life over time. And part of that trusting was trying to comprehend something. And so it's like, this is so big. It was a bit much to without any kind of understanding, just go, okay. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's possible. You know. Also, without understanding, there have been cases of genuine realization which terrified the person. They didn't know what it was. The classic example yes. is that book, Collision with the Infinite by uh, Suzanne Siegel, uh, where she uh-huh. shifted into this awakened state. And although she had a background in this kind of stuff, she'd sort of left that behind a few years ago. And she, she didn't know what this was. And it just totally terrified her. She couldn't find a yeah. personal self anymore. And she spent 10 years trying to find one and, <laughs> until wow. she finally relaxed with some help from Jean Klein and uh, wow. came to realize that she had actually shifted to an enlightened state. So intellectual understanding is important. It not only inspires us on the path to realize there's something more, as you felt since childhood, but it also yeah. supplements and can, it can safeguard the path to make us realize that something good is happening, which might otherwise be interpreted as something bad. Horrifying. Or horrifying. Horrifying. And to Beth's point, I'm um, in Washington, as you said also, until that's no longer needed. And then it's in the way. And then it's in the way big time from any kind of direct contact with whatever is going on right here, right now. You don't need the crutches once the leg is healed. You don't need the boat exactly. once the river is yeah. crossed. Right. Yeah. right. Beth had a follow-up question, which is, is suffering due to our lack of awareness of this love of all things or a feeling that we are not worthy of this love? Can you repeat the question, please? Sure. She asks, um, is suffering due mm-hmm. to our lack of awareness of this love of all things or a feeling that we are not worthy of this love? And I'm not sure that necessarily is an either-or question. Maybe those are two facets of, of why suffering occurs. Go ahead and see what you can do with it. Yeah, no, I think it is both. I really do. I think it is both. Um, I think this business of feeling unworthy, oh, my God, I can, it is so ubiquitous. It is so... I wanted to cuss. (laughs) It's so ubiquitous. I mean, I understand. I really do. I mean, I don't know how we would not, considering that we are taught that we are puny. We're taught that we're not connected. We're taught that we're not anything. We're not whole. So how can we not not? How can we not? That's a shorthanded way of saying that. So without a doubt, we suffer as a result of that. My God, we suffer. We suffer because we think we are inadequate. We suffer because we think we are unworthy. We suffer because we think we are alone. And I also think we do suffer because we are disconnected from the depths of what we really are, which is where the profound all rightness is. Yep. So I think both are true. Yeah, that's just what I was going to add. We suffer because we're constricted. If we think of ourselves or experience ourselves as only being this isolated little thing, then that is very conducive to suffering. Whereas if we realize that we are the field, you know, we are the vastness, then right. things can happen to the little thing that, you know, the individuality, exactly. that, which might have been devastating. But if we're sort of grounded in that in being, then we can take them in stride so much more easily. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll add one other thing to suffering. We suffer when we interpret our pain. We suffer when we interpret our discomfort. So the very pure sensation of pain, the very pure sensation of grief or whatever, any emotion is not suffering. It does not feel like something is so massively wrong. And there's a, and I think we, I think that's a big misunderstanding about that. I don't suffer. I don't feel. And it, to me, the opposite, the exact opposite, the more awake I am, the more I'm feeling because yeah. Yeah. You're not shut down anymore. Like you were saying. Exactly. Or removed. Yeah. Exactly. And yet you have the capacity to feel. So if a person doesn't have the capacity, then you don't want to just impose um, oh, feeling right. on them to any, it may be, maybe it's a healthy protective mechanism that we shut down if we haven't developed the, the capacity. But once the capacity is developed, then the, the armor can be taken off. We don't yeah. have to lug it around anymore. Well, you say that I go back to one of the advantages of sitting with somebody is that you, you can, somebody can be there with you as you increase your capacity. You know, like you're not alone in this kind of, this feels really bad. Mm -hmm. And spiritual practices can also increase capacity. You meditate regularly or something and it it just, um, you know, you just get more and more deeply grounded in being and therefore more invulnerable in a way but not because of your being closed down but because of being oceanic (laughs) being ocean yes Yes. i think more vulnerable and invulnerable all at the same time yeah i mean i remember seeing some verse about you know the sensitivity of a yogi is like that of the Mm -hmm. eyeball or something you know just acute acutely sensitive but and so feeling everything but having the sort of vastness to let it flow through and not be um overwhelming Exactly. Exactly. A question came in from someone whose name is going to be very hard to pronounce. I'm sorry, I won't do it right. I don't think it's from Kosh or Dean Batotok or something like that from an even harder to pronounce place in Sweden. (laughs) But anyway, (laughs) um, he said, uh, so if you live in a kind of a ghetto, or literally in a low energy place and meditate every day, is there any help? Is there any hope? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I interviewed a guy a few months ago who was on death row for 18 years and kept himself wow. sane through intense spiritual practice. It doesn't get much worse than that. Wow. Nothing to add to that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Look up that interview, uh, Kosh. It's um, Damien mm. Damien Eccles. It's a, you'll mm. find it in the in the past interviews menu on Bad Gap. He was wrongly accused of murder and spent eighteen years from the age of eighteen for the ages of eighteen through thirty six uh, in a hor- horrendous conditions in in a j- prison in Arkansas on death row. Wow. Can I add one more thing to that? It also, there's something about breaking, letting our hearts break open. That is a gorgeous portal too. So I mean, it it isn't inconducive to be in a place where it's so heartbreaking it, as you meditate and you can let yourself be open to it. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah, I have a friend um, 
not not a close friend, but someone I've known over the years in in the Ama group, and I just saw her in New Mexico, and she has um, been doing spiritual practice since childhood, and she um, is a nurse now, and and she she started out her first nursing stint in the emergency room in uh, you know bad part of Albuquerque. You know, with all the sort of like shootings and drug overdoses and everything coming in, and she just felt like she just had the capacity. You know, having, have, well, wow. I'm sure there are all kinds of people who don't do spiritual practice who have that capacity. But the, but burnout is a problem among teachers and nurses and policemen. I mean, look at all the police violence stuff that happens when they've right. just gotten so and and soldiers. I mean, all these people right. they don't necessarily have a way of of releasing. Uh, right. all the stress they encounter and so it bottles up and eventually some Absolutely. something erupts well especially if you're giving from an ego rather than from vastness we're more prone to being burned out you know just so far you can go you really have to recharge your batteries you do uh-huh. you really do yeah um okay here we go on to the next point. You've been very helpful in providing some good talking points here that we're working our way through. Okay. There's an important conversation going on right now that I would love to be involved in, not only from the awakened perspective, but also from my decades of being a depth psychologist. I'm looking at the importance of facing, being with, and feeling our very real human pain, suffering, and experiences instead of the ubiquitous spiritual bypassing and not getting bogged down or stuck in the psychological inquiry and healing, missing the deeper essential reality of our true nature. The space between this eternal openness that melts the paradox of we mm. of we are not here and we are fully here. So we've kind of covered this, but I bet you there's a bit more we can say about it before we move on. Well, the stuff we've been saying about developing the mm, capacity yeah. to, to feel pain because perhaps being shut down is a protective mechanism that we, mm. we are wired to do and we can't help doing, and maybe it has its purpose. You know, I mean, the, the snail has its shell for a reason. The turtle has its mm-hmm. shell. The notion of Brahman or the totality mm-hmm. is that it in, encompasses or engulfs absolutely everything. And when the Upanishads say, Tattvamasi, they're saying, you are that, Brahman. You, you encompass or incorporate everything within mm-hmm. your being. So imagine the depth of strength as well as delicacy that one mm-hmm. would have to have to really live that. Yeah. And to develop that capacity seems to me requires a very... Um, strong willingness to feel. And I think for, if the most part, I think most people, most of us, we don't want to feel bad. We don't want to feel bad. And I think part, part of the spiritual bypassing is this, maybe I don't need to feel bad or feel hurt or feel grief or crumble because somebody I love died. Like, you know, um, they're hoping that the bliss of enlightenment will sort of overshadow any pain or suffering that might arise in life, perhaps. I, I think so. And, as, and also, as I'm as I'm sinking into it even more, it's like there's also something about becoming very um, transparent and clear with ourselves about our motivations 
and our biases and what, and even just this kind of humility of there's more I don't know about myself. There's more about being human than I don't know. So this kind of, um, the, again, back to that intersection of there's nowhere to hide. I think that's really basically like a big bottom line. There's nowhere to, there's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to hide in the denial of our humanity. And there's nowhere to hide in the um, blissfulness of enlightenment. We are all here as beings, feeling, feeling beings with a certain um, sense of movement and energy that behooves us to be familiar with. It just behooves us. Yeah. I have a friend who was on Batgap years ago who says that, um, you know, decades ago he awakened. And um, he's been living in that state ever since. But he's, he's, he says, you know, still, he, he always had a gnarly sort of personality, didn't get along mm. well with people. And um, he was prone to depression and all. Mm-hmm. And after awakening, he still had a gnarly personality and was prone to depression. He actually <laughs> has been going to a counselor and trying, yes. trying various, you know, medications in rather microscopic uh-huh. quantities because he seems to be very sensitive. And he finally found something which actually shifted him and he feels like his whole behavior and his depression has has changed for the better but if we take him at his word that he has shifted is in some enlightened state fairly high and yet experience this stuff it sort of might shift our conception of what enlightenment is or can be or might be exactly maybe maybe this kind of stuff is not necessarily wiped out exactly and certainly we've seen so i've seen certain enlightened people i would say uh, get angry shed tears, yes. uh, you know, all that stuff. But you know what I think? I think where the profound shift is, is our, orient, is our orientation to that. Right, right. Like, I don't identify with it. Yeah, but it's going and on. I don't, and I don't judge it. And I'm not hard about it. Like, and so there's something about, and there's where, to me, unconditional love works its magic. But the but the idea of like it not being there, I don't know. That's that can really talk about gnarly. That can be that could be pretty gnarly, you know. A question came in from Gloria in El Campo, which I presume is California. It doesn't say. Um, she said, "Hi Beth, you were going to speak of what you noticed looking out of your eyes after the retreat, but were interrupted probably by me. Sorry about that." Um, <laughs> I wonder, what did you notice looking out of your eyes as you sat on the couch after the retreat? Thank you. Uh-huh, uh-huh. How lovely. How lovely. So um, let's say this is a very subtle experience because actually where it was mostly noticeable, I got up off the couch and I walked down to Fillmore Street, which is about a 20-minute walk from my apartment. I can't tell you how many times I have walked down to that street. I cannot tell you how many times I have walked on that street Cannot tell you how many times I've seen the stores, the people, da, da, da. So that was what was so remarkable to me. It's like I'm walking down and I'm seeing the same trees, the same stores, the same sidewalk. In some case, maybe even the same folks who are still walking, you know, walking the street. And it's like, but I'm seeing everything in this kind of direct contact 
that I can only say is like awareness is looking at it, not this kind of like, oh, I like that or like, um, whoops, um, yuck, um, all that, all that kind of like, oh, maybe I'll get that. All that kind of, um, I don't mean this pejoratively, ego chatter. Yeah, I was just going to say chatter, yeah. All that kind of ego chatter that would go on that would indicate, interpret, perceive, comment on everything was gone. It just, it just wasn't there. And it was just sort of like this breath of fresh air, like a cool breeze, a cool breeze. And I think what made it so cool is that it was everything that was so familiar. So I couldn't say, oh, of course, I've never seen this meadow before. And isn't it gorgeous? No, it's everything familiar. And it's really lovely. Simply just there it is. So like that. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus talks about being like little children, except you be as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's, it's kind of like, exactly. you know, you were looking at things with innocent, fresh eyes exactly. without all the overlay of, of interpretation exactly. and conditioning and stuff. Exactly. Has that persisted or did, it, did you get back into more of a chatter mind? No, it persisted. Meaning that when the, the mind starts chattering, it's like this awareness watching it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's another lamppost on Fillmore Street. Yeah, you're not caught you know, in the chatter. Like, right. And even if I do get caught, even there, it's like there's a knowing of like, oh, so pay attention. Maybe there's something that needs to be revealed here. But again, I cannot emphasize enough how different it is to not judge myself, to not have that kind of both interpretation and judgment and shame. Oh, my God. You had done a lot of that, I take it. Oh, my God. And so just this like, oh, okay, okay. And not that it feels necessarily good. I'm I'm not trying to sanitize it, but the orientation to it is, to me, a game changer. That's nice. Yeah. It's well put. How many years ago was that awakening on the couch? Five and a half. Five and a half. Almost so six. That's pretty impressive. You're, you're like almost 76. You really look great. I'm almost 77. Thank <laughs> almost you so 77. much. Almost 77. Yeah, you look fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, consciousness and good genes. <laughs> good genes, yeah. <laughs> um, I never would have guessed. <clears throat> So, um, you know, if you could sort of track the past five, five and a half years, um, you know, do you see a, a, a kind of a course that, that your life has taken? I mean, maybe it's the same thing at deeper and deeper levels. If you look at the way your life has gone over the past five years, you could perhaps tell us about that a little bit. But then if it continues to go in this way, how do you see it going over the next five years? Or is that, yeah. is that sort of, do you not think in terms of out, out, so much outside the present? I don't think outside of the present, but I think I can actually respond to what I think you're asking. Because I'll tell you something that has happened recently that got my attention big time, big time. It started about January of this year. Let me give you a little bit of background. I had breast cancer twice. 
The second time was 10 years ago. So this January, I developed a pain that got my attention and did not go away. It was in my back. And I had this like, huh, I have to wonder. I just have to wonder. Might this be cancer? So I called my oncologist and it was about a two or three week period of time before I could get an appointment. And the first thing that I noticed is that I didn't push that. I didn't call back and say, oh my God, do you have anything sooner? That was the first thing. In that period of time, whether it was two weeks or three weeks, something went on that actually was completely delightful. Again, unbidden, absolutely unbidden. It was this ongoing deepening, deepening, deepening of me being gone. Gone. I mean, gone. And so real. I mean, viscerally real. And then I started looking around my apartment at the different things that I have. And almost everything that I have has some kind of association to someone I love or somewhere I've traveled or something that has meant something to me in my life. And I found myself, again, unbidden and in this very kind of sweet, rhythmic process of saying goodbye. Okay, and goodbye to this and goodbye to that. Getting to my kids and oh my God, just, that was heartbreaking. I mean, that was just heartbreaking. On and on and on and on. Time comes for me to go to the doctor. It, so this, this went, again, this went on. I think maybe I'm, able, I, maybe I'm being able to communicate to you how real this was. And I think the reason I keep saying it that way is because it was like, I'm going, this is really real. Oh, my God. So I go to the doctor. She tests my lungs. She tests my back. And I am cancer-free. And I find myself disappointed. (laughs) I went to all that trouble saying goodbye to everything. Now I'm not going to (laughs) die. And that was part of it. Part of it. Because it felt so real. It felt like, okay, this is what's happening. But then the other thing that it occurred to me is like, there's some way I feel finished. Like I came, this is how it feels to me. I came to wake up. Okay. Yeah. Meaning in a very, very, very deep way. Okay. And I don't mean this in any kind of light way. There's nobody in my life that cannot be all right without me. And I'm not, talk, I'm not talking about not missing me. I'm not talking about, oh, my God. But I'm talking about, am I leaving anything unfinished here? Am I leaving anyone in the lurch? No, no. So I sat with that. Like, that was, <laughs> I sat with the disappointment. I sat with like, huh. And I often hear What might be needed and what I heard at that time is be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. And I must have spent hours. I have a very lovely um, state 
park close to my home and there's a eucalyptus grove. I call it my cathedral. I must have sat there for hours and hours and hours. I wasn't sleeping well. I was very tired and I just sat still, 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 still. One day shortly after that, I got up for breakfast. I started cutting up a strawberry and I look at the strawberry and I'm see if I can even capture what that moment was like. I can't capture the moment, but I will tell you the, the knowing that came out of that is like, oh, I'm here to eat strawberries. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nothing else. Nothing else. And I'm going to say something like almost conceptual in retrospect. Some kind of doing, some kind of like here for a purpose must have just dropped away. Because it's not like being in direct contact is new for me, but it's a depth of being in direct contact with nothing else mattering, nothing else mattering that sort of like went, oh, okay, that's it. There's nothing else. And so it brings me in the present into a here and now in a deeper way, in a deeper way. So to respond to your question, it's like, I could almost make a case for a five, almost six-year process of embodiment and a realization in an embodied kind of way. And then this kind of like, oh, okay, nothing. There's nothing needed, but right here, this right now, that's it. That's it. And not conceptually. Yeah. Well, you know, all is well and wisely put. There was a song by this jazz guy years ago. That I think it might have been Miles Davis or, some, or Cannonball Adderley or somebody. He said, the, the creator has a master plan. That was the name of the song. And uh, it's like it's not in our hands. Yeah. And also, even if you're just eating strawberries, the very presence on earth of an awakened person is quite a rarity. And I think yeah. it makes a tremendous contribution to humanity to have such people around. Yeah even if they're just living ordinary lives out of the public eye in every respect, we're all linked, we're all interconnected, and uh, every single awakened person is undoubtedly stirring or enlivening something in the collective consciousness which very much needs enlivening. Amen, right? Amen. Amen. Exactly. No man is an island, you know, we're not isolated as we may appear to be, so we we radiate an influence all the time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a question came in from Aaron in Dunedin, New Zealand. Aaron asks, um, oh. where is the knowing of your experience? Uh, Does knowing of uh, what is happening right now shift uh, somehow? Is it your personality that shifts? Wow, great question. Great question. I'd say it's awareness that's knowing. And it just depends upon what awareness is attuned to. And it just moves from that to that to that to that. You know? So you mean if, um, if awareness is object-oriented or object-referral, then that's one thing. But if it's self-referral, that's another thing. And that, that's how the self is known, by self-referral mechanics? 
I don't quite get that question. And maybe I didn't get his question well. So Well, it's like there's a verse in the Gita which says the self knows itself by itself. So w- okay. what else can know the self? Because it's, it, you know, if we could step apart from it and know it, then it couldn't be the knower. Just as the, eye, see, the eyeball see, cannot see, perceive itself. So what is the knowing of your experience? And your answer, I think, kind of addressed it in that way. Sort of awareness of Thank you. self-referral yeah. awareness kind of thing. Yeah, but yes. I guess I'm going to say the same thing again, maybe a little different way. It's like if awareness, what's awareness attending to, that's what it's knowing. So like right now, I'm knowing our conversation. Um, sitting by myself, I might be knowing how I feel. I might be knowing the sunshine coming through. But it's, it just depends upon what's being attuned or attended to in this moment. In this moment, that's what's known. And would it be true to say that living presence is not a matter of reminding yourself of it or checking in to make sure it's there or any such thing? It's kind of like breathing or any really automatic process after a while. It just abides regardless of whether you think about it or not. I think that's the gift of awakening. That's the remarkable gift of awakening is that it's effortless. It goes It goes. Presence is on its own, present, 100% of the time. And obviously it's not a thing that can be thought about anyway. That, that would just be a concept. Um, so what it actually is, is you know, something which would have to be spontaneous and mm-hmm. automatic once realized. Because otherwise you'd lose it when you fell asleep or when mm-hmm. you burned your hand or something. It would just be... Mm-hmm. There's that, ver- I keep quoting the Gita mm. here, but there, there's that saying, um, the unreal has no being, the real never ceases to be. So mm. how could the reality actually come and go? If it could, then the universe would be on very shaky ground. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think that's also the, hu- the humbleness of the whole thing. I have to say, when you say that, and I think back about not knowing that, when it was, it was true all along, even when I didn't, even when I didn't know it, it was still true. So there's something very, I find it deliciously humbling. Like, yeah, yeah. Right. Was that part of the realization when it dawned, which often people say, which is like, oh yeah, this has always been here. I just didn't notice it. That kind of thing. Honest, honest to God, honest to God. Right. I, you know, Tutankhamun, that was my, my association when he found the the tomb was true, what he had been looking for all those years. Uh, you, That's how you mean I the felt. archaeologist who found that tomb? Is that it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Unclear. Yeah. But um, from childhood, I've had this, Inkling. like, I, yeah. I know, I know. I don't know what I know, but I know, I know. And so there was that moment. It's like, I'll be darned. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yeah. And I have to tell you. I still feel, I, I still feel a little bit of a pinch me kind of like, it's really true. It's really true. And you know, you, you might relate to this living in the world we live in. It's like, this is not what people are. This is not the currency. So the more, so that too makes me even more like, and look, it's true. Even though nobody's talking about, well, most people are not talking about it. And it's often put into some kind of pejorative lens or, you know, box. 
So that's also what makes me pinch, like pinch myself. Like, it's true. It's true. And thank God, like you said, it's others. Like, right? It's like, oh, okay. The many singing this song, many singing this song. Thank goodness. Right. And have been for thousands of years. Forever. And have sometimes been crucified or burned at the stake for singing it. You know? Exactly. Because people were expecting a different song. You know, they, they thought, exactly. well, our, our books tell us the song should go this way, and you don't sound like you're singing that one, <laughs> so let's kill you. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Huh. I mean, that's very true. If th- there was an age only a few hundred years ago where you and I would have been killed for talking right. this way publicly. Right. Um, so fortunately, we live in a, a more enlightened age. Well, one of my um, ongoing reflections over the years has been at the cru- is Jesus's crucifixion for that reason, for many, many reasons. But it's like it was it was in the back of my mind for years and years and years and years. What is that really? What is that? You know? Yeah. Well, one thing it is pertains to something we've been talking about, which is could that realization be maintained in the midst of such a dire circumstance in, in the midst of such a horrific experience exactly. did he have the depth of realization to maintain it and if so yes. did he actually suffer or was he actually residing in a realm that was beyond the reach of suffering beautiful well i mean who knows that's just a question but I, no but i can tell you for myself personally that's been the question i mean that's definitely a question and it's like i think that's the other pinch me it's like oh yeah it is real even in the midst, it is real. It is even in the midst, and even in the depth of feeling and the mishagas of this crazy, chattering mind, it's still real. It's still real. And you know, we may hopefully reach a time when people would listen to this. You know, maybe this maybe this interview will be online for a hundred years or more, and people listen to it and say. Isn't it weird that the way they thought this was such a big deal back in those days? You know, it's like, isn't it obvious? Doesn't everybody know this now? We, oh, society Rick, Rick, could shift it, to that extent. May it be so. Yeah. God, may it be so. Yeah. May it be so. I really hope it will be. You know, and there are various predictions and who say it will, that we're, we're going to shift into some a much brighter age. And there are ancient records of ages that were like this when it was more mm-hmm. common knowledge. So things move in cycles, and hopefully we're on the upswing. Seems we'll like see. It. We'll see, yeah. yeah. I mean, actually, they're contending forces. It seems like we could, yes. we could also be on the downswing if we want to look at it that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we're on the right team. <laughs> At least that's the team I want to be on. Me too. Yeah. Me too. Me too. Well, Beth, it's been great talking to you. Your website, which I'll be linking to, is BethMillerPhD.com. And um, what, yeah. what do you have to offer people? How do you interact with people? I do see people one-to-one in my home. I do see people on Skype. I probably, I think, I thought about this before you and I spoke. Um, I think it'll be obvious from our conversation that, that there's a way that I can help people psychologically but I also think, especially as a integration embodiment of awakening from the perspective of like what's still happening in the human condition, what's still happening 
um, I would like to offer myself there. Okay. And it says on your website that you actually offer a free half-hour consultation to begin with. And then people can take it from there if they want. That's right. It's true. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's nice. Yeah. You may find yourself a little bit overwhelmed with those free half-hour consultations for a while. (laughs) I'll be bowing to you, Rick. (laughs) right. It's like, oh, my God, I should have taken that off the website. (laughs) I'll be bowing to you or I'll be calling you at 3 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) Edit that out, please. (laughs) Well, good. That's nice. Um, All right, so... um, to those who've been listening or watching, you know who I've been speaking with, Beth Miller. And um, I'll have, a, as always, I'll have a page up on BatGap uh, about Beth and with link to this interview, link to the audio podcast of it, and a link to her website, which you can go and explore. And, um, you know, if you feel so inclined, perhaps take her up on that offer. Do you ever do retreats or anything like that? Or I do writing retreats. retreats. And I actually, I can well imagine doing retreats. Okay. It's, it could evolve yeah. into that. I think it could evolve. I think it could evolve into that. Yeah. Yes. Huh. Yeah. Good. All right. Well, we'll see how it goes. But anyway, stick around. I'm glad uh, that you decided not to die. And <laughs> it's good to have you here. I mean, you hadn't done your back gap interview. Well, that has to be on your bucket list, right? <laughs> I so thank you for your service. Um, so thank you. So thank you. It's a joy. You know? Yeah. It's not work. Uh, yeah. Well, that's what makes it such a pleasure yeah. for us too. For us too. Right. Yeah. And you're thanking a bunch of us. You're thanking Irene without, you yes, know, it, and, yes. um, and Dan and Jerry and Angel and various people who help with all this. It's uh, couldn't yeah. do it without them all. Thank you. I had some lovely encounters with Jerry. I think we're fast friends. Oh, good. Yeah, a lot of people say that about Jerry. Jerry's the guy who helps ahead of time getting people set up technically with their camera and their microphone and all that stuff. And, and you know, so often I hear from people, wow, what a great guy Jerry is. You know, I really enjoyed meeting him. Sometimes they end up with having long philosophical conversations with him and stuff. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, he was a godsend. He couldn't, he couldn't have been sweeter and he couldn't have been more helpful. And I don't know anything about technology. So he took me from zero to this. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Beth. It's, Thank you. It's really been nice uh, getting to know you better. Hope to see Thank you. Thank you. Maybe we'll see you out at the Science Non-Duality Conference or something if you feel like going there. But in any case, we'll stay in touch. And uh, thanks. To, I just want to thank those who've been listening or watching. Next week, I'll be interviewing a woman in Israel named Georgie Johnson. So stay tuned for that. And if you'd like to be notified of new interviews whenever they're released, there's a mailing list sign-up thing on batgap.com. And I've mentioned the audio podcast, uh, which you can do. Some people don't have time to sit in front of their computer. And also I mentioned the the PayPal donation thing if you feel like contributing. There's a Mm -hmm. PayPal button on every page of the site. So thanks for listening or watching, and we'll see you for the next one. Mm